Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. political backdrop is a made-for-TV and big-screen movie last night. Did not disappoint. Early morning hours, there was a vote on the skinny repeal of Obamacare. It failed with a dramatic thumbs down from John McCain, who came back up from Arizona despite his new diagnosis of brain cancer, to vote down and crush this bill. Here to discuss, Zach Tracer, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, as well as Stephen Dennis, Senate reporter for Bloomberg News, who is on Capitol Hill and who is at the proceedings last night, or should I say today, early this morning. I'm amazed you're still up and and, uh, and conscious at this point, Steve. Can you give us a sense of what it was like on the floor in the moments leading up to the momentous John McCain thumbs down, uh, as well as just uh, afterwards as everyone tried to digest what this failure meant? Yeah, so it was a really insane night. Um, talked to John McCain several times leading up to him walking into the chamber. And he had told uh, us and other reporters about two hours earlier that he was prepared to vote no if he didn't get at these assurances from the House, that he wasn't necessarily satisfied with Paul Ryan's answers, and he wanted to talk to his governor. And then I got him right before he went on the floor, and he said, you know, I'll let you know. He told another reporter the show was about to go on or something, or watch the show. And so we sprinted upstairs into the chamber to see what he was going to do. And the first thing he did is walked up to Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer suddenly had a big smile on his face and put his arm around McCain. And then McCain goes over to John Cornyn, the Republican whip, who suddenly is very agitated and upset, turns around and gives a thumbs down to another senator. And uh, I sprinted out of the chamber because it looked like this thing was going to go down and McCain was going to vote no. And uh, over the course of the next hour, there was an un, you know just a massive effort to try to get John McCain or Lisa Murkowski to change their minds. And Mike Pence came over and talked to him for about half an hour, talked, took him off the floor. It looks like there may have been a phone call with the president. Uh, other senators, one after another, came and tried to talk McCain out of it. In the meantime, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are sort of on each of his shoulders and sort of protecting him. And uh, McCain ultimately stood fast, and Lisa Murkowski stood fast, and Collins voted no first, then Murkowski, and uh, McCain sort of for effect came in and was the third no vote. Um, And there was audible gasps inside the chamber, uh, especially from the Democratic side, and, uh, you know, just a... a, a crazy scene, sort of a madhouse in, in the in the uh, Capitol afterwards with Republicans dazed, mad, uncertain what to do, and uh, Democrats also dazed because they certainly weren't expecting this. Uh, Zach Tracer, I wonder if you could come in and tell us what does this mean now for Americans who have been using insurance that is available through the Affordable Care Act? Uh, well, Obamacare survived another sort of near-death experience. Um, it, it remains to be seen what this means, you know, over the next few years. Uh, we're still going to be relying on, you know, a Trump administration that's declared this law dead, that's, you know, uh, Donald Trump tweeting, let it fail. Um, you know, so so we're going to be relying on those folks to 
you know, run open enrollment, which starts in November, um, to, to make sure this market works going into 2018. Um, so, you know, still a lot of open questions about what um, the administration will do. Um, but for the time being, you know, this this is the law of the land. Uh, Steve, I want to get your sense on what's next for the Republicans. There already have been some calls for Senate Majority Leader McConnell to step down or uh, give over the proceedings to somebody else with respect to health care. But this is a huge blow politically because this is the one thing that they wanted to get done, um, certainly in the first year, uh, you know, or initially. What's the next step there? Yeah, I think that there's really a choice now for the president, uh, you know, as Zach was saying. You know, the, the president has to make a choice now. Does he want to maybe pivot? You know, he, he, all these talk, maybe at some point Trump will pivot. Uh, he can do what he did last night and just talk about letting the law, the law fail, maybe try and sabotage it and try to bring the Democrats to the table with threats. I don't think that's going to work. Um, there are things you can do with Democrats. Mitch McConnell didn't sound particularly interested in and, uh, you know, he said that he didn't think there was going to be a lot of interest among Republicans in bailing out insurance companies, which is sort of might be code for uh, just giving more money to the system for things like cost sharing subsidies. Well, but Zach, I want to bring you in here. So if Congress does nothing, what would happen to Obamacare in its current form? Well, the, the big question that we're watching, um, as Steve pointed out, is what happens with these uh, cost-sharing subsidies. These need to be paid each month. There's a, a big legal dispute going on over whether they're, whether it's legal for them to be paid. Um, and it, the, essentially, this legal dispute gives the Trump administration um, some ability to decide to stop paying them at any time. So there's this big, big threat hanging over um, the Affordable Care Act. And, and if these were pulled, um, insurers have said either that they would pull out of markets um, they would raise premiums something like 20%. So, I mean, this is, you know, sort of the, the nuclear option that they do have uh, going forward. Stephen, maybe you could shed a little light on this. Uh, there seems to be this d- desire for infighting, right? There's infighting with the Republicans in Congress. There's infighting inside the White House. There's infighting when it comes to this health care uh, initiative. What is caught? Is the, and you've been covering this. Do you have a sense of what is deeply uh, uh, responsible for this? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, right? Um, for when you lose a bill like this, it's not just one reason. There's there's many different reasons to have sort of this kind of catastrophe. I think one of them has to be the Trump White House is in complete chaos. I mean, the, there's been basically this complete utter meltdown in the last few days with Scaramucci uh, and his uh, profanity-laced tirade to the New Yorker about Ryan's Priebus. This is not what you. This is not the sign of a well-functioning White House trying to pass its number one, you know, legislative priority on the Senate floor. Yeah, but but hang on, but Stephen, but is it but is it the, the characteristic of let's say uh, an administration that wants to do away with the old levers of power and to create the very kind of conditions that you're describing because they don't trust the old way of doing business. I guess so, but I mean, you know, there's a math problem here. The math problem is that they have 52 Republican senators. They don't have 60, they don't have 70, they don't have 55. 
They have 52, and two of them are Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who owe nothing to Donald Trump. Uh, Lisa Murkowski gets elected with independents and Democrats in Alaska. She, you know, she is based, she does not face a reelection until 2022. And John McCain has brain cancer. He's John McCain. He can do what he wants. There's, you know, the, the the one punishment was Rand Paul preventing him from uh, doing his defense bill today, but. You know, uh, I think John McCain ultimately is the the one person who could probably uh, safely kill this bill and and not really have to worry about some some massive repercussions. And if they were to try to do threats against uh, these senators, there was a clumsy threat against Murkowski. That I don't see how that does anything but backfire when you only have a margin of two. Makes sense. You know how to do the math for us. Thanks very much, Bloomberg Stephen Dennis, our congressional reporter. Our thanks also to Zach Tracer, our health care reporter. We've got much more coming up. This is Bloomberg. have been talking about the FDA's surprise decision to cut the amount of nicotine in cigarettes to non-addictive levels, or that at least is the plan. I want to bring in Anna Agni. She's our healthcare reporter here at Bloomberg News. And Anna, before we get into the details of this and talk a little bit about the response with shares of uh, Philip Morris and Altria plummeting, I want to just ask, do you have any idea what precipitated this announcement by the FDA? Well, it's something they have been talking about um, even before the new FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, got there. Um, Mitt Zeller, who's the head of the tobacco center there, he's made references um, in the past to wanting to focus more on nicotine to sort of taking a more nicotine-centric approach um, to how they, they deal with tobacco products. And so it seems like, you know, with, with Gottlieb coming in, that, that maybe that was something that was able to be um, hastened and that, um, you know, possibly some of, some of his ideas um, kind of made this a bigger deal than it would have been before. Anna, isn't it also uh, a, a, a direct a sort of an effort on the part of the FDA to encourage what they describe as safer alternatives to cigarettes, such as uh, e-cigarettes and uh, vapor uh, products? Definitely the FDA has been looking into whether there are, you know, safer products. So they they have authority through a 2009 law to to kind of look at um, these reduced risk products is what they call them and, and try to maybe get those um, FDA clearance. And so, you know, they haven't quite stood behind anything yet and said, hey, this is better for you um, than a cigarette might be. And they haven't really pushed that quite as a policy, but it looks like that could be the way that they're moving with this decision. They also talked about targeted relief, I believe, uh, on the timeline for the FDA uh, looking at the regular regular regulations and the application submissions, right? Yeah, that's right. The, um, you know, to, to be able to get in their, um, these reduced risk products to, to turn in kind of the information they need to, um, to, to be able to, to get on the market. They, they pushed that back so that, um, and tried to ease some of the regulations so that, you know, they could support 
the the alternative is basically to smoking the what they call combustible cigarettes. So, Anna, if they've been if the FDA FDA has been talking about this for a while, why was there such a dramatic response in the shares of Philip Morris and Altria? I think it was um, you know something that they they've hinted at, but no one really knew exactly how they would implement it. Um, as far as the the nicotine um, levels goes, as reducing those, and we still don't exactly know how they'll implement it. They yeah, said that's it's what something... I was just thinking. Like this sounds pretty, <laughs> I don't know, sketchy. Not sketchy as in like <laughs> I don't know, you know, if this is kosher, but as as far as like you know, sort of a sketch of a plan. They're planning to look at this yeah. and maybe address this. So it's sort of the reason why uh, I sort of have doubts about the response in the market to this. I think you're right that it is a sketch of a plan, and and that's something that um, that. Commissioner Gottlieb has been doing in many different areas. He's saying, here's where I'm going. He's not waiting until everything is fully ready to go. He's kind of giving people direction um, on different things, whether it's drugs or medical devices, um, and here on tobacco, as, you know, this is where this is where he's looking. This is what he would like to do. Um, what comes out in the end, you know, that's a, that's a totally different question. Um, you know, I think right now we're probably, there are probably lobbyists, um, tobacco lobbyists all across Washington um, gearing up to do a lot of work in the, the next, you know, few months or year, however long this might take to come up with, um, and talking to, to lawmakers. You know, there's a, there's a good chance that there are some maybe particularly Republicans who, um, who don't want to, to interfere with cigarette products and, and might seek to block this. Well, maybe you could just also talk about the initiatives. I know that Philip Morris, for example, uh, they're the maker of Marlboro. Uh, they have uh, their own smokeless cigarette, right? The uh, what is it? I I IQOS. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, not as so you can't say it as nicely as Marlboro, can you? <laughs> I know. Um, they so you know the notes I've seen this morning coming in from um, some of the analysts on Wall Street who cover tobacco companies. They're actually saying that that could be a benefit um, for for Philip Morris and that they um, they might you know be able to kind of take the lead in this in this market um, given the shift that FDA is kind of starting to put in place. Um, these the the non-combustible cigarettes are considered more like um, products that would heat up instead of burn, so they kind of heat slowly at a, at a much lower rate. Um, and so, you know, those kind of products could be where they're headed, and it, and it looks like they kind of have the jump on that. I want to thank you very much for being with us. A uh, very important topic, uh, Anna Edney, uh, explaining what uh, is going on with the Food and Drug Administration, working to cut the amount of nicotine in cigarettes to non-addictive levels, the goal preventing thousands of tobacco-related deaths a year. It was a surprise move, and uh, the shares are certainly reacting to it. Uh, looking at the shares of Altria Group, they are down 9.5%. British American Tobacco down more than 6.5%. Uh, uh, this is a story, obviously, we will uh, continue to follow. Thank you very much. Yeah, don't you think this? Uh, I think it's fascinating, but I also don't totally understand the response because if, if everyone knows the FDA has been working on something and then they put out something saying we're working on something and everyone freaks out, I don't totally get it. Well, now it's on paper and they can all freak out. And they're selling the stock.
David Garrity is our, just, our guest now. He is the chief executive of GVA Research, and he is also a columnist at Investopedia. And, uh, David, uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about Amazon uh, earnings or lack thereof, right? Certainly. Well, no, with regard to Amazon, I mean, we're looking at a company here that historically, you know, over the 20 years that it's been public and obviously the years before then when it was private, has typically focused very, very much on gaining market share and has not been shy about spending money in order to do that. And now while we're in a situation here where revenues are continuing to outpace analyst expectations, uh, the company hasn't necessarily fully made its turn towards a commitment to consistent profit that people were hoping for, and which I think has been instrumental in helping to drive the stock price higher over the last 12 to 24 months. You know, Shira Ovide, a Bloomberg uh, gadfly columnist here, made a really good point, I thought, which is, why are shareholders surprised by this? Amazon has said, we are going to spend money on new initiatives. We are not going to try to uh, generate even bigger profits. This shouldn't have come as a surprise. So why did it? I think on the margin, what you have to consider is that as Amazon has grown and gone into more verticals and has essentially captured the market capitalization associated with those prospective competitors, that the pool, if you will, of institutional investors investing in Amazon are no longer, strictly speaking, the technology-oriented investors that it was in the past. That Now people have begun to look upon Amazon as being a proxy or an eligible substitute for investing in the retail sector or investing in the consumer sector. And I would argue that the expectations associated with those investors and their investing parameters have obviously favored profits more over time. And so it's these new marginal investors or investors coming in on the margin who arguably are the ones that Amazon needs to be concerned with and the ones who are concerned about Amazon's expense growth. Well, and Amazon plays in so many different fields, just as you described. And I keep thinking of the Amazon effort when it comes to your living room, whether it is the Alexa uh, speaker that is connected to their vast inventory of stuff that you might not need, plus also their entertainment offerings with Amazon uh, Prime uh, Video. That competes directly with Apple in many ways. I wonder if you could talk about Apple, because they're going to be releasing their results on Tuesday. Certainly. Well, I mean, Amazon, uh, you know, waiting in very, very effectively. But and, and Apple arguably seems to have been late in terms of the battle for the living room, if we will. But I would say that, you know, in the case of looking at Apple, we do have something to look forward to in the fall, which is the introduction of the 10-year anniversary iPhone. Um, you know, price points there seem to be moving north of $1,000, so there may be some questions about uh, affordability from a consumer standpoint. But nevertheless, from an investor's perspective, Owning Apple ahead of a product introduction has typically been a good time to own the stock. And if we wanted to look at sort of a valuation of Apple relative to its growth rate, say as compared with Amazon, Apple is trading at far less of a demanding multiple relative to its expected growth rate based upon earnings estimates, you know, held by put out by the street versus those of Amazon. And so as a result, if investors wanted to have exposure to tech, you know, from a tactical standpoint, probably not a bad idea to be looking at Apple over Amazon in here. David, I love the war for the living room. It sort of could connote a lot of things, but this is uh, perhaps not the one that uh, people think of with, you know, marital discord. Uh, but David, you know, I want to talk a little bit about a point that Liam Dunning of Bloomberg made earlier in the show where he was talking about Exxon and that the issue uh, with the shares falling after the release of their th uh, second quarter earnings really came because their prices were already so elevated, their share price, um, that anything but perfection was going to be such a disappointment 
disappointment. I mean, is Amazon basically in the same boat and that going forward, unless they're able to deliver uh, the sky and the moon, you're going to see a continued weakness in their shares? No, I would say that, you know, given the midpoint guidance for operating uh, income for Amazon in the third quarter, that number being, you know, a negative, I think, $100 million. So the company arguably saying that they might be in a position just to lose money in the third quarter. Um, investors typically had looked for Amazon for you know, a big finish to the year, a big fourth quarter. And so I would say that probably Amazon trades flat to down, uh, but finds some support you know, going into maybe the end of August, beginning of September, when investors start setting themselves up for a run into the year end. And the fact is, is that Amazon is going to be very well positioned. With the recent Amazon Prime Day, uh, they sold more Echo slash Alexa-powered devices um, you know, from that standpoint, and they're moving into more categories. So clearly, the share of wallet they'll be gaining uh, arguably is going to be growing. And bottom line, we are looking at an, an economy that probably remains relatively stable um, going into the second half of the year, both domestically and we're seeing some strength coming in major markets such as Europe overseas. David, uh, just quickly, uh, do you believe that people will be uh, speaking in into their Alexa uh, devices, ordering groceries from Whole Foods? Um, we'll have to see if the uh, Trump administration allows that transaction to move forward, but I would certainly expect that, yes, this is something likely to happen. Well done. All right. Thank yeah, you very I mean, much. honestly, I think that this is uh, this is really key. I was reading uh, on the Markets Live blog on Bloomberg how the sell-off in Amazon's shares has really driven a sell-off across emerging markets, equities, and how this has had huge ripple effects in a variety of markets. So uh, clearly, what happens here has a very, very big uh, ramification on many other markets. David Garrity, thank you so much for joining us. David Garrity is chief executive officer of GVA Research and a columnist. Investopedia, and he uh, always provides good insight into the world of FANG and technology. Coming up, politics, policy, and power with Amy Morris and Roz Krasny. Uh, Amy, I, I hear that there's some, uh, I don't know, stuff going down in Washington these days. We have 10 shows in one. We're going to take 20 pounds of news <laughs> and put it in a five-pound show. Uh, the Russia sanctions bill could face a presidential veto. Russia's reacting to it as well. We're going to follow all of that. The Affordable Care Act repeal has collapsed. You may have heard Senate Republicans blocked that bill. We're going to find out where they go from here. Also, we got the second quarter GDP numbers, and it is also Trump's first full economic quarter. So we'll find out a little bit more about how he is doing as well. Well, a lot to listen to. Ten shows in one. Politics, policy, and power with Amy Morris and Roz Krasny. They will jam it all in uh, to that hour, and it is an important hour to listen to. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. I'm looking at ExxonMobil, which uh, missed estimates for earnings, basically because cuts failed to offset output declines. To give us a little bit more perspective, I want to bring in Liam Denning, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist who focuses on all things energy. And Liam, what was the big takeaway for you from these earnings? Well, I think with, uh, with Exxon specifically, uh, their big problem is that although they're still generating a lot of money. Okay, they missed earnings estimates, but they still, you know, made $3.4 billion. And they are still, um, for the third quarter in a row, covering their um, their capex and their dividends from uh, cash flow from operations. The problem is they're just, they're just trading at too 
big of a premium as far as I can see. Well, well, hold on a sec. This is actually really important because what did they have as far as cash flow? $3.4 billion? No, th- in, that, in, that, that was earnings. Oh, earnings. So that, they, that, that their earnings are $3.4 billion. I mean, this is a tremendous amount. So right. you're saying that basically all of the valuations right now are so elevated that anything but perfection and exceeding expectations will be a downer. Uh, yes, and, and particularly in Exxon's case, because Exxon uh, historically has always traded at a premium compared to the likes of uh, Shell, Chevron, BP, uh, whatever, um, because they do have this uh, reputation for, for excellence and, and a great track record on um, on delivering projects and that sort of thing. But I, I just think that these days um, that may be just a little too backward-looking because this company is is challenged on several fronts. And if you look at its free cash flow versus, say, Shell, which delivered great results yesterday, uh, the, the disparity in valuation is quite stark. Well, the disparity also in the dividends is also dramatic. Well, the disparity in dividends is, uh, is, is actually not too dramatic if you consider that Shell at the moment is having to fund um, some of its dividends with Scrip, i.e. It's, it's issuing new shares. But I, I think the, the biggest problem is Shell clearly delivered a lot more free cash flow um, this past quarter, and, and on a four-quarter basis, it's, it's really quite a lot. And if you look out ahead, analysts are forecasting Shell to deliver, you know, perhaps dub, almost double the amount of free cash flow that Exxon is set to deliver over the next three years, and yet Exxon trades at much bigger multiples and a much lower dividend yield um, than Shell. I guess I was also, I, you know, I, I was trying to have you read my mind. I apologize, I apologize Sorry, because uh, I also lumped in uh, with Shell. I was thinking of Chevron, which also released results, and I was looking at their dividend, and that is significantly greater than than Exxon, and the stock's moving higher today. You think they're going to have to sell even more acreage of, uh, it, it, like, in the Permian Basin in the in the sh- shale gas region? Uh, in terms of uh, what Exxon? Well, yeah, I mean, they're going to look at what Chevron's doing and go, well, maybe that that XTO ap- uh, acquisition. Maybe we need to sell some of the acreage. I don't think so. You see, Exxon's problem uh, is really that it made a big bet on Russia. You may remember they signed this uh, this very far-reaching agreement. Yeah, the Sakhalin Islands. This is what Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, got a medal for. Well, Sakhalin is, is, is actually running fine. It's more the agreement that they, that they signed with Rosneft to, um, to develop uh, Russian shale and Russian Arctic offshore. And this was going to be the growth driver for Exxon into the 2020s. The problem is uh, sanctions have largely closed off some of that. And, and so Exxon is actually pivoting closer into um, the Permian shale where it's made a number of acquisitions. The difficulty it has is that the shale business is quite different from Exxon's uh, bread and butter, which is, which is big kind of mega projects. Uh, shale is very capital intensive. Um, it's, much, it's much more about uh, repeating your success on a, on a lot of smaller projects over and over again. Now, there's no, pr- there's no doubt that Exxon can bring some operational excellence to that sort of business, but whether it can achieve the sort of returns on capital that shareholders have uh, become used to over the past um, couple of decades, that really remains to be seen.
Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Liam Denning is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. He covers energy, oil, and uh, all things related to fossil just, fuel. Just to be clear, yes. Liam is not joining us. He is working from home where he can put his feet up and stay in his pajamas. So thank you for getting on the phone with us. But can you tell my resentment? It's a Friday. I Clearly. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> and enjoy. Enjoy the lounge, uh, uh, Liam. Uh, I'll just tell you that uh, ExxonMobil shares, they are right now, they are down uh, two and a quarter percent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 